When you look at your life, what do you see? Some see what's right in front of them, but they can't see beyond it. They're living kind of nearsighted with their life. Others, they see where to go in the future, but they can't see where to step today. They're living kind of farsighted with their life. But some people see what God sees. They see the identity he made for them, the calling he gave to them, and the destiny he dreams for them. And because they see it, they can live it. This is 2020 Vision for Life. Are you ready to see? Welcome again to Obviously Bible. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, got my Iowa State jersey on. Since Yeah, I know, I know. Hey, but hey, the good news is for people like myself, Dave, Mike, Myra, our teams will not lose today. So that's a good, that's always a good thing. But uh, hey, I'm glad you're here this morning and I'm excited as we begin a new series uh, called Vision for Life, 2020 Vision for Life. Have you heard of Helen Keller? Helen Keller was uh, a great woman of faith who at age two became ill. And uh, in her illness, she actually lost her sight and her hearing, and she uh, remained deaf and blind for the entirety of her life. Yet she had an incredible life in the legacy that she left. Uh, she was an advocate for the blind, combating blindness, and she, she helped veterans who came back from war who had suffered uh, blindness, and she helped found the ACLU. She graduated. She, she had a teacher who taught her to feel things and realize there were words for them and uh, read people's lips by touch and learn to read Braille. Can you imagine teaching someone that who couldn't see and couldn't hear? And yet she was able to learn all these things. She graduated cum laude from Radcliffe College. She has a, a profound life. And, and someone at one point in her life... And she did have, have great trust in Jesus. She asked her if there was anything worse than being blind. Listen to her response. She said, well, yes, being able to see, but not having vision. That's a remarkable statement when you think about it. Here's a woman who couldn't see, but she had incredible vision for her life. In all the things that she accomplished, all that she did, it's kind of a statement that when she makes that, that it really kind of pierces to the ability that all of us take for granted. That we just kind of, we can just kind of coast through life and not really catch what is the vision that God has for me and for you. What is it that he's uniquely shaped me for? What, what is it that I'm... Herefore, we know how to see, but we lack that type of vision. And when it comes to seeing and having vision, clarity is really essential, isn't it? Um, you know, a lot of people wear eyeglasses. I wear them because I can't see. And when I take off my glasses, you guys are all blurry. But when I put them back on, there's clarity. And there's all different kinds of glasses. Some people wear glasses like this. Even if you don't need glasses to see, you might wear sunglasses in the summer. When the sun's out, by the way, do you notice that today? That big orange ball in the sky? What is that? 
And the, the sun is out. Praise the Lord for that. But, but maybe you wear sunglasses. Uh, some people just wear glasses today just because they feel like it makes them look smarter or look better. And then, uh, have you ever been to another type of glasses? Have you ever been to a 3D movie? There's a, there's a TV in my office. It's about uh, 10 years old. And at that time, uh, the big deal in TVs when you're buying is that they would be three-dimensional. And uh, my, my TV in there, it came with these four pairs of 3D glasses that I've never opened. You ever gone to a 3D movie? And you, you go through the door, right? And you pick up the glasses in the plastic bag and you open them up. And then you put them on. If you're like me, you wear them over top of your other glasses. And then when you're looking at the screen, though, what do you see if you don't have these on at a 3D movie? It's a mess, isn't it? It's blurry. You just feel totally disoriented. Then all of a sudden you put these bad boys on. These are a little more stylish than some that maybe you get in the movie theater. You put these on and suddenly what happens? Clarity. Everything comes into focus. And all of a sudden you're in the midst of just this incredible story being told all around you. Maybe you duck out of the way of fake things flying by your head. But there's great clarity. i got to take these off because they, they don't work without a 3D movie in front of you. They make you a little dizzy. But the action jumps off the screen. And, and with the glasses on, everything comes into focus. Well, I bring this up today because I think what happens at a 3D movie, when you put on those glasses, happens in the life of somebody who trusts Jesus and steps fully into all that he has for them. That it's like putting on these 3D glasses and the life that was once just blurry and flying by and I'm disoriented with even what's happening and I'm just kind of going through life. Suddenly uh, things begin to take shape and take focus as Jesus works in your heart and changes you and as you step into all that he has for you. I truly believe that and the Bible clearly, clearly teaches that. And so over the next six weeks, we're going through this series called 2020 Vision for Life. You know, 2020 vision to be able to see things clearly. I wonder, can you do that with your life? God cares about that for you. He cares about it for me. And and the big thing I want you to come away with over the next few weeks is a clear vision of who you are and who God has created you to be. And if nothing else, at least some steps you can take to begin to live into that. Now, if if you struggle with that, you're not the only person in history to struggle with it. I struggle with it. Uh, All kinds of characters in the Bible and the biblical story struggled with with having a vision vision for their life. And and some of the greatest leaders in, in the history of the Bible struggled with really learning and living into what God called them and shaped them for. Moses, for example, he was a convicted killer on the backside of a desert is where he had to finally see who God had made him to be. Gideon, a young guy, uh, maybe only junior high in age, he struggled threshing wheat in a wine press because he couldn't imagine the mighty man of valor God had actually created him to be. Samuel, he struggled to perceive that Jesse's oldest son wouldn't be the next king of Israel, but that the youngest shepherd boy, who no one even invited to be anointed would be. Or Paul, he literally had to be knocked down to the ground off his horse in order to get a vision of who Jesus had called and shaped him to be. 
and what he was to do with his life. There's others we could go through that whole list, but all of them struggled with the same struggle as a guy we're going to look at through this series, Jeremiah. In fact, the entire Old Testament book of Jeremiah is kind of an inside look in some ways, in some ways, at this one prophet and his country struggle to really see what God sees. Jeremiah was a prophet uh, uh, at a time right before the exile. If you don't know uh, some of the history of the Old Testament, uh, let me just give you a brief overview of kind of the biblical story, okay? Uh, make this really quick, but, but long story short is God's people uh, had been brought into a land that he promised them. And he told them uh, that as long as they were there, as long as they lived there and they obeyed him, if they chose to obey, they would be blessed and things would go well for them. But if they chose to sin... And they chose to worship the gods of this land rather than God Almighty. Then what would happen is that they would choose to suffer and there would be suffering for them. Choose to obey, choose blessing, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Well, over time, the people of Israel continually chose uh, not to obey, but to suffer. And it got to the point that after Solomon was the king of Israel... There was great division because of this continual choice uh, to choose to sin. And the entire nation of Israel was split in two. And ten tribes went to the north, and they became the northern tribes of Israel. The northern tribes of Israel had 19 kings over their lifetime. Guess how many of those kings were righteous? You don't have to count very far. Zero. None of them were. And so what happens is in 722 BC, they chose to sin. So what are they choosing? To suffer. So God actually sends in the Assyrian army to conquer them and take them off into exile. Well, there was also, uh, I said the kingdom was split, right? There were northern tribes. There were two left in the south. And they were known as Judah. And Judah also had 19 kings and one queen. And unlike uh, the northern tribes, they actually had a whole grand total of eight who were kind of good at times. And so what happens is because of their obedience, God delays their judgment, but it still happens to them. In 586, they get sacked by the Babylonians. Well, Jeremiah is prophesying right up to 586 BC to the southern tribes telling them, hey, pay attention God says, if you choose to sin, you're going to suffer. Turn back and obey him. That's where Jeremiah is living. You have a whole list of things about about Jeremiah. But as his story opens, uh, read with me in Jeremiah. Uh, It'd be kind of to the right of the middle of your Bible, or you can just read it on on screen. It'll be up there. And we're just going to start right at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah today. And the first three verses give us a little picture of who Jeremiah is. It says, these are the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. You're like, whew, I'm lost. Long and short of it, Jeremiah prophesied for uh, 
like 44 years, I believe, 42 or 44 years was the length of his ministry. And what we're told here is the different kings that he was a prophet under and how that lasted until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month of the year. That's 586 BC when the Babylonians come in and sack Jerusalem. That's what it's saying. Now, Jeremiah, like I said, he prophesied during probably one of the darkest moments of Israel's history. And he was often known as the weeping prophet. Do you know why? He's he's often known as the weeping prophet. Well, because he kept saying, hey, turn back, turn back, turn back. And guess how many people did? And nobody did. Everything he prophesied of God's judgment came to pass. So it's kind of sad. In fact, he wrote another book. Uh, Not only the the book of Jeremiah, he wrote a book called Lamentations, where it's full of laments because of people not obeying God. Now, for most people in Jeremiah's day, we might say that their life probably felt a little bit like a blur. They were living a life under the threat of attack all the time. The deliverance of God seemed really distant. It was a story from way back when, and, but, but it was really nowhere connected to the reality of their own day. They were just going through life, clearly satisfying themselves rather than obeying God, forsaking God and his using everything they had been given by God simply to serve themselves. These are the people that Jeremiah prophesies to. And it's right at this point then, that God calls this man, Jeremiah, to be his mouthpiece to the nation. And he's, he does it. He makes a few remarkable statements to Jeremiah that might encourage you today. Because maybe you're going through life a little bit either like Jeremiah or like some of the people in that day. Just coasting along in, in a sea of just everything being kind of a big blur. Look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah's writing this, so it came to Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, God tells Jeremiah at the beginning of all of this, I knew you. That's a profound, profound statement. Think about that. God in his sovereignty, before you and I were ever a a couple chromosomes in our mother's womb, he knew you. He knew you. He knew what your personality would be like. He knew what you would look like. He knew, uh, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 113 that all the days of your life were marked out ahead of time before any one of them had come to pass. God saw you. And he knew you, just like he knew Jeremiah. That, that's incredible, isn't it? To know that I'm known by the creator of the universe, by Almighty God. That he sees and he knows every one of my days, even before there was one of them. He knew everything about my life. And, and one of the things I want you to see this morning is that you and me, just like Jeremiah... You are God's one-of-a-kind design. His one-of-a-kind design. Now, that might sound kind of cliche, right? You're unique, just like everybody else. 
Think about that. You'll laugh later. But it's really, some couple, somebody just got it. It's really true. You are. You're a one-of-a-kind design. I wonder, um, I want to jump out of Jeremiah for a second. Will you, will you humor me and jump ahead to Ephesians? Have you read Ephesians chapter 2 lately? Ephesians chapter 2 is, is a pretty powerful passage of scripture. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And, and here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. It, it starts out in some pretty solemn doom and gloom tones. Listen to this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's writing to a group of people who have put their trust in Jesus, who are now followers of him. And, and, but, but this is who you were. you were. You were dead, man, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. That, what that means is like you and I... Deserve God's wrath for our sin. That's an incredibly solemn truth. Just like everyone else, we deserve his wrath. But then in verse 4, Paul makes a turn and he says, listen, that, that was true, but, but God. It's a big but in your Bible. You can circle it if you want to. This is huge. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love. We sang about that. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See, because he, he knew me way before and he knew what he had for me. And so he redeemed me. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Paul lays out who we truly are. And he lays out what it really means to be a Christian. It's that you've put your faith in uh, this grace that God offers you in Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ and him alone for, uh, for your salvation, to make you new, to make you free, like we sung about in nearly every song this morning. And there's this general call on all of humanity to trust Jesus and to have this become true of them, to believe on the Lord Jesus and be made free. But then look at verse 10. After laying out this identity, Paul says this, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's two ways to look at this verse. In the one sense, you could look at it as an extension of this call to believe in Jesus. Now we're all supposed to do the same types of good works, right? We're all supposed to love people. Would you agree? Yeah. Love God. Yeah. Glorify Jesus. Yeah. Make disciples. Answers. Yeah. We're all, we're all called to do that. It's pretty simple, right? But there's another way to look at this. And it's when you zoom in on that word workmanship. See, because that word workmanship, do you know what that word is? In the Greek, it's the word poema. 
You might, you might recognize an English word that sounds like that. Can you think of it? Poem. A poema means a masterpiece, a work of art, a unique creation. You are God's, what Paul is saying, you are God's highest work of art. You, you are. Every poem, every work of art has something unique to contribute and to communicate, doesn't it? See, you you were prepared for where his workmanship, where his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God did what? He prepared when? Beforehand. For Jeremiah, the call was to be a prophet, right? Before, Before I... Formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you, and I would appoint you to be a prophet to the nations. He had prepared good works for him in advance before he was even born to go out, go out and accomplish. And I believe it's the same for you and for me. He's uniquely created you and appointed you, just like Jeremiah, and consecrated you for something unique. Acts 17.26 says that every person... Uh, of every nation of mankind, God made us to live on the face of the earth, determined, and he determined, he predetermined the allotted times and periods of time that we would live and where we would live. Why? Because he had prepared good things for you to do in that moment, at that place, beforehand. He knew you and he knows you. You're his one-of-a-kind design. One way to think about this, maybe you've heard me say this, is that God has been dreaming about your life. He's been dreaming about it. He created you in Christ Jesus, and he prepared you for good works that he prepared beforehand. Beforehand means he saw into the future. He he saw what, what he had for you to do. He's been dreaming about your life. Before you came into existence, you were in God's imagination. He knew you before you were created. And he's made you to be exactly who you are in order to do exactly everything he's called you to do and accomplish. There's no one on the planet like you. He knows you and he's destined you for great things. But the truth is for a lot of us, no matter how many times we hear that, and maybe many of us have maybe heard that our entire life, it's really hard to believe and actually live out. To really truly at a heart level believe and understand that God's made me uniquely for something. Jeremiah struggled with this. See, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Verse 5, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then look at what Jeremiah, look at his response in verse 6. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. What do you mean you're making me a prophet? We read in the first three verses, we kind of skipped over it, but Jeremiah comes from a family of priests. He's not a prophet. How am I going to be a prophet? I can't speak. I'm, I'm, I'm young. How are you going to use me? But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm just a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, Jeremiah, you shall speak. God's response is, dude, don't give me that. I've had you in mind long before you were even formed in the womb. And I'm the one who designed you. And I'm telling you, this is who you are. You need to live out who I say that you are. He says, don't be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. 
You know, maybe like Jeremiah, you convince yourself there's nothing really truly special about who you are. I'm, I'm too young or I'm too old. I'm, my abilities aren't that significant. My passions aren't that extraordinary. And, and even if we were convinced of who God made us to be, man, I, I live in a small town. Uh, nope. My, my environment is... It's, We get caught in the haze of ordinary life and we, we just settle for modest expectations of what God might have for us rather than maybe the dreams that he's been dreaming for you. The truth is, even if you may not feel that unique, you're more unique than you think. You're more unique than you think. I mean, if you travel just a little bit, you're going to find every landscape is different no matter where you go around the world, right? Uh, let alone the people you meet. <laughs> No two are the same. I mean, that, that's easy to pick out, isn't it? Everyone is different and unique. And God doesn't make generic cruise ship art. You're his poema. You're his work of art. You're his masterpiece. He's created you with good works in mind for you to do and accomplish and he crafts every one of us as a one-of-a-kind, utterly unique, irre- irreproducible person. Consider the snowflake. Like, what about snowflakes? Yeah, everyone's unique. No, but they, they genuinely are. Did you know that? Like, like if, imagine the infinite amount of random ice crystals in one winter storm blowing through northern Indiana some winter. Every single snowflake that falls has a different formation of crystals in it that was shaped by the unique, if you talk to scientists and uh, people who study the weather, they'll tell you because of the unique microclimate in which that little snowflake lived, all the different forces blowing on it, swirling around it, everything else around it shaped it uniquely as something different than every other snowflake. Now imagine that uh, multiplied out throughout the entire world in every snowstorm in all time. The same is true for your life, that God hasn't wasted any unique microclimate of your life, good and bad. He can and will use that in his plan, in how he has shaped you and what his destiny is for you and what he's designed you for. I mean, Jeremiah grew up in a time when uh, life was chaos and everyone around him was disobeying God. And yet God uses that to shape him. And even when he says, I'm too young, I can't do this, I can't speak, by God's grace as he steps into it, he's empowered actually to be an incredibly bold prophet. What is it for you? What is it for you? Friend, you're almighty God's work of art. You are. He has dreams for your life and for mine. And when you become a Christian and you turn to Jesus, in a sense, God is restoring the true you he created you to be. Think about that from the perspective of eternity. Before you were born, before you were formed even in your mother's womb, a twinkle in your mother's eye, so to speak, God knew you. He had dreams for your life. He formed you and fashioned you. He knew you and then he formed you in your mother's womb. And and he allowed every situation that you were born into, uh, 
he may not have, uh, it may not have been according to his will and the sense of his moral will, but he will use that and does use those things to shape you into who he has you destined to become. And he has plans. He's had dreams for you from before time. I wonder when you stand before almighty God one day, because you will, there's a day circled in red on your calendar, on my calendar, where we have an appointment with our maker, right? We'll give an account to Jesus for our life. I wonder, what will the question be? Will it be, why weren't you more like Jesus? It'd be a good question, wouldn't it? In Romans 8, 29, we're, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. Uh, this kind of was really popular not too long ago with these little bracelets that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Why weren't you more like Jesus? Why didn't, I think it's the wrong acronym. How about HWJL? You know that one, right? Let me give it to you. Instead of the question, why weren't you more like Jesus? I wonder if the question might be, think, I think this is kind of profound. What if the question is, why weren't you more like you? Like who God actually created you to be. Who he actually had dreamed you to be in eternity past who he knew you would be in eternity future. Why weren't you more like you? And so HWJL means how would Jesus live if he were you? If he had your nine to five, if he had your spouse, your kids, if he lived in your house, in your neighborhood, how would Jesus live if he were you? See, being conformed into the image of Christ isn't so much uh, becoming like him in every way in the sense that I'm a carpenter and I die on a cross and all that. No, it's, it's uh, being formed into who he's created you to be like Christ in, in that perfect poema workmanship sense. Jeremiah did that. I mean, what, how would Jesus live if he put on your pair of pants in the morning, invested your money, disciplined your kids, spent time at your hobby? How would he live? When we become more like Jesus, it doesn't negate our personality. It actually grows us into exactly who he's designed us to be. It doesn't decrease you, it increases in the very best way. Now, let me say this, understanding and embracing who you uniquely are, you know, like personality tests, whatever else, it doesn't excuse your sin. It doesn't excuse you to say, well, that's just how I am. Eh, doesn't work. Sorry. Because that's not who you are. <laughs> like if you're excusing your sin and saying that that's just who I am, well, well, no, God actually designed you to be somebody uniquely like Jesus, but in the sense of your true self. It doesn't excuse who you are. It may explain some things. It certainly doesn't excuse you. And friends, you are his one-of-a-kind design, and you're created with a divine destiny in mind. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. You know what a destiny is, what that term means? Here, here's one definition from a dictionary. A destiny is the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person or thing in the future. We sang this morning, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my what? 
my destiny. It's the things that absolutely will happen, that are necessary to happen to a particular person or thing in the future. Jeremiah's design, your design, points to your destiny. You're a -a one-of-a-kind design, and you have a divine destiny in mind and how you've been created. In Jeremiah, we, we read about this in verses 8 through 10, what kind of destiny God has for him. He's talked about how he's created him. He knew him in his womb. And then he tells him that he's to be a planter and a builder, not a literal planter, you know, like a farmer or a builder like an architect, but a prophet who plants and builds things with his words. But this planting and building won't happen on neutral ground. He'll have to, in order to plant, he's going to have to plow up some things that have grown where they shouldn't have. In order to build, there'll be some things that need to be torn down and removed. It won't always be easy work, but it'll be good work. And not everyone will appreciate what Jeremiah is doing in living out who God called him to be. In fact, most people don't appreciate much of what Jeremiah tells them as he lived who God called him to be. But nonetheless, God's designed him for a specific person purpose. Look at verse 8. God tells Jeremiah, don't be afraid of them. For I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I'm with you. These are the words God gives to everyone throughout Scripture that he's designed and given a destiny. He says, I will be with you. Everyone who's chosen to follow him and live into who he's designed them to be, he says, I'll be with you. It may be incredibly hard. It may be I will be with you. Think about it. Think about it. Moses, these are the words God gave to Moses when he called him to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, don't you get it? Like I'm a murderer. I've I've run away from Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants to kill me. It's been 40 years of just hiding. God says, no, no, no. Uh, Moses, I will what? Be with you. I'll be with you. How about Joshua who succeeds Moses? He was convinced that Moses' shoes were way too big for him to fill. Yet God says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. I will be with you wherever you go. Gideon, young guy who was sure that God had chosen the wrong person to the point that uh, night after night, he throws out this fleece with different things trying to get God to convince him. And I think you got the wrong guy, God. What does God say to Gideon? I'll be with you. Or Solomon, when he was convinced he couldn't live up to David's legacy, God said, Solomon, I will be with you. Uh, What about Jesus to his disciples? He said, as you go make disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, as you, you live into who God created you to be, he will be with you. He'll be with you. He continues to say that to all of us. I'll be with you. I I designed you for a purpose. I designed you for a destiny, for a sure destiny. Certain things I've designed you and you alone to do. If you will let me continue to form you and to make you, I'll help you step into that. That's what God says. See, what was true for Jeremiah then is true for us too. You're more unique than you think. And the God of the universe has designed you in the same way that you have a unique fingerprint. Your life has a unique design. Every one of us does. And all of our lives intersect in different ways to different degrees, but none of our lives are the same. 
Psalm 139, I, I mentioned this earlier, but let me read it to you, verses 14 through 16. The psalmist says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, Lord. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed. For who? For me. When as yet there were none of them. You want to know a guy, here, let me read this verse to you and tell me if you think there's any significance in it. Acts 13.36 says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. It seems pretty insignificant at, at, at first, but when you really think about it, it what it's saying is that, that David had a unique purpose that God had in mind. And once that purpose was fulfilled, then what? David went home. David went home. I I believe he has those things planned out for you and I as well. And the God who formed you is committed to forge the future with you. So we start to wrap up here. Let me ask you something. Do Do you remember the great American eclipse? August 21st, 2017. It was a total solar eclipse within a band that spanned across uh, the entire contiguous United States. Did you get any of those glasses and walk outside and look up at the, look up at the sun, right, see the eclipse? And uh, even President Trump did. I had, uh, Jody, I had a picture of you out there, but I didn't put it up there. I was kind to you. But we had pictures of all of us just kind of dumbly looking up, you know, and smiling at the sun with these goofy glasses on. Well, around here... It was kind of cool. It was kind of neat. It got a little hazy, a little bit darker, but there were some, though, that were in the band. Maybe you remember this word, in the totality of the eclipse. Do you remember that? People talking about that? And if you would have went south, I believe like down into Tennessee would have been the closest to us. You could have went into the totality of the eclipse. And if you were watching about it on TV, all the different broadcasters, they would show all the slides and the maps of where you could see the eclipse in totality and step into it in that way. For those of us who weren't, we were in kind of the smaller bands. I don't remember what it was around here, you know, 77%, 67%. And it just got higher, though, as you got closer. But it, it might sound like even as you got to like 97% of totality, that, whoa, that was pretty close. That was pretty cool. And it was. It was remarkable. But there was a huge difference between even 97% and full totality of the eclipse. In fact, uh, those who, who saw it in like 95 97%, uh, it seemed a little bit overplayed. You know, it was, it was dark. It was gray. But it was just, it, it wasn't that great. The streetlights came on, but soon it was over and life went on. Cool, but not something maybe you'd tell your grandkids about. Yet the people who were in totality, who had entered into it, they were astounded. They had a totally different experience. They were astounded by what they saw and what they found themselves in. Some of them cried. Just get on, look up YouTube videos. Some of them cried about it. Others felt like they were coming alive. Like there was just this different experience being in total, in the totality of the eclipse. Friends, why do I bring that up? Well, 
Because I think there's a lot of us, we, we kind of live in that 67, 77, 87, 97% of maybe what it is God has for us. And we're unwilling to step fully in to that totality of what he has designed you for and who he's created you to be. And I'm inviting you over these next six weeks to step in to totality, to get in your car and drive a little ways and get there with me. So what are some steps you can take toward that end? Well, first off, I'll give you two. First off, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, ultimately what this all boils down to for you is nothing more than a little bit of self-help. It might be helpful. And there's all kinds of self-help. You can get it everywhere. But the reality is we can't help ourselves. Jesus is the one who helps us. He's the one who's created us. He's the one who's back here looking from eternity past into eternity future. He sees you. He knows you even before you were created. And he has good works prepared for you. His poema. And the first work he has for you is that you would trust him. In fact, it's all over scripture. It's all over the place. This is one of his commandments, 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, excuse me, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. But, you know, he commands all people everywhere to repent. I'm telling you, if you would trust Jesus Christ, turn to him. That's, that's your first step of taking the step into, toward, into totality. Trust Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like, yeah, but Josh, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know how messed up it is. You talked about a snowflake and that little microclimate. My microclimate was like a raging hurricane for all of my life, and I am royally messed up. Listen. Jesus knows. He cares. And he promises to work all of those things however awful they might be, things you've done, things been done to you. He he promises, I'm telling you in Jesus' name, he promises to use those to work them for good and to forge your future towards the destiny he has for you. He is big enough to overcome all of that. You simply need to trust him. You simply need to trust him. In fact, that's the only thing you need to do. Jesus answered. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe, friend. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if you know him, and after you do that, two things. One, put your sin away and follow him. And then uh, consider stepping in this reality. And I would challenge you to get involved in a life group if you aren't already. Because over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at these things. And there's, uh, there's uh, questions even in your in your bulletin insert there that that build off of the things we're going to be talking about that will help you along with a group of other people begin to take steps into who God's designed you to be. So get connected. And then the third piece, you might consider this. Well, we don't have a date set for this yet, but as we finish this up, we're going to do like a a Saturday morning uh, seminar, a a primer on, on how to really step into this even further. So You'll hear details about that coming soon, but I would, I, would, I would encourage you to consider that as we get closer. With that, uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And uh, let, me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you, uh, you knew me. You knew each one of us. 
before we were even formed or even thought of by our parents or our grandparents or anyone. You, you saw us, you knew us, and as Ephesians 2.10 says, we, we were your and we are your poema, your workmanship. We're created for good works that you prepared well in advance for us to do and to accomplish. Jesus, I pray for those who've never trusted you that today might be the day as they hear my voice that they turn from their sin and Jesus simply put their faith in you. If that's you, it's so simple. You just have to believe, acknowledge in prayer to the Lord that that you need him, that you need a savior. Repent of your sin. That means to turn from it and trust Jesus to make you new. He will, he promises to. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that you'd help us to live fully into who you've designed us to be. Help us to discover those things. This isn't a, a selfish endeavor, but this, this, if done rightly, Lord, it's, it's an endeavor that's, that's meant to bring greater glory, Jesus, to you. To live fully into who you created us to be so that you would receive much, much more glory from our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen.